have a timeout. Decide not to use it. Curry, way downtown. Bang! Bang! Oh, what a shot from Curry! What's up, everybody? You're listening to the Fanless.pod. Sean Ramachandran here with you, joined by Yash Joshi and Rohan Naranjan on yet another NBA podcast. The Bucks have finally won an NBA Finals game for the first time in nearly 50 years. Um, the series is now 2-1 to one with the Suns still in the lead. Game four upon us. Um, Giannis and the Bucks are eight and one at home in the postseason this year, uh, five and six on the road. So, getting this win in Milwaukee is very important. Controlling that home court, maybe tying the series up, at least making this a six-game series down the stretch. Overall, Giannis has probably been actually not probably he has been the best player in this series, hands down. Now, it's just a question of can the Suns play defense? Can they get aggressive enough back to how they were? And especially game one, I believe they really controlled very well. Giannis has had his way the last two games, becoming the first player since Shaquille O'Neal to drop 40 points and 10 rebounds in back-to-back NBA Finals games. I think Giannis has played at the highest level as well as we could have hoped as well as the Bucks fans could have hoped. He's given it his all, and Sean just talked about in the first game, the Suns kind of slowed him down. Also, don't forget that Giannis came into this series with a hyperextended knee. Many people thought that he may not even play in the finals. So there is reason to say that maybe in game one, he was still feeling the effects of that of that injury, and then game two onwards, he's been a lot better. But I, I'm going to be honest with you guys. Watching game three, I completely forgot Giannis injured his injured his knee maybe a week or two ago but he looks like mvp Giannis. he's taking over the game dominating it deandre ayton was in foul trouble for most of game three so there was really nobody the phoenix suns had to throw at Giannis, and and that was evident with the bucks kind of just blowing them out of the water Giannis could do whatever he wanted drew holiday had his first great game in the finals there was like a stretch in the game where drew holiday hit two or three threes in a row tough threes and it really did show that the bucks are here not as just spoilers but they're here to make this a series and as sean talked about if the bucks win game four we have a real series on our hands if they are able to or if the suns are able to close it out in milwaukee then i don't think the bucks come back from 3-1 that's why i think game four is the critical point in the series the bucks have to do everything in their favor to win this to keep this series kind of even going forward yeah game four win obviously would be huge for the bucks and i agree Yash. like i think it's a necessary win i think it's gonna be nearly impossible for this Milwaukee team to come back from 3-1 if they lose game four. As good as Giannis has been playing, obviously back-to-back 40-point games. Like Sham said, he's the first player to have a 40-plus game, plus uh, I think 10-plus rebounds since Shaq in the finals. So absolutely legendary stuff from Giannis. You can't ask much from him, from more from him here. But I think the big difference in game three was the difference between the Suns' backcourt versus the Bucks' backcourt. Through the first two games of the series, the Bucks backcourt um, with Holiday and Middleton uh, were outscored by Chris Paul and Devin Booker, 113-67. Um, but in game three, it was a complete opposite. Holiday and Middleton combined for 39 points on 50% field goal shooting um, and 47% three-point shooting, while Chris Paul and Devin Booker only combined for 29 points on 39% field goal, um, 39% field goal shooting and 18% from three. So it was just an abysmal game especially from Devin Booker. Uh, you can say, you can call it an off game. 
Monty Williams actually went as far as benching him in the middle of the third, and he didn't come back in the game, did not even play the fourth. So this game was pretty much over um, after that, after the Bucks made that second uh, 24 to six run in the third. So in order for the Suns to bounce back, we need a much better game from Devin Booker. Obviously the Suns just go how he goes. Um, and like, like Yash said, DeAndre Aiden being in foul trouble was a huge problem for the Suns going forward. I don't think that they can play Giannis one-on-one anymore if they want this series to go their way. Like, like Chris Paul said in the post-game interview, they need to build a wall. I think that's going to be the key to defending Giannis. And they definitely need to do that game four to just the game plan. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, going back on, you know, what Yash said about Giannis, it's tough to imagine this guy just hyperextended his knee. And so, you know, one week after, you know, he's hyperextended his knee in the finals, he's now averaging 34.3 points per game, 14 rebounds, four assists, one a little over a block per game. Um, 62.5% shooting from the field, 66% from the free throw line. He can improve over there, but you know, he's been nothing short of phenomenal and going back to the Suns' struggles, Chris Paul, I think is also like one of the, obviously the key facilitator for the Suns' offense. I understand Devin Booker struggled a lot, but it's worth noting that Chris Paul in the previous five games of the playoffs, he had 10 total turnovers. So two per game, you know, basically, but, in the last two games of the NBA Finals, he was guarded by Drew Holiday for the most part, and he has 10 turnovers. So just as much as he had in the first previous five games. So that's um, something to definitely keep an eye on. I think that it's important that, again, the Bucks need to control that home court because, again, like Yash said, like Rohan, you reiterated, if this team goes down 3-1, it, it practically is, um, I don't want to say impossible, but you, it's safe to write them off because only four teams have come back down from 0-2. And the Bucks could be the fifth team to do so, but going down 3-1, I believe it was only the 2016 Cavaliers to come back. So, you know, history and statistics is really not on the on Milwaukee's side. I also do want to touch upon something that Rohan talked about, and that's Devin Booker's struggles. You said how Devin, how Devin Booker does are how the Suns do. And here's an interesting statistic for you guys. Since Eight games ago, Devin Booker got that Patrick Ever Beverly elbow to the nose. And since that game, he shot 39% from field goal and 28% from three. And the Buck or the Suns have still they still come out and they still won a majority of those games. They did struggle in game three against the Bucks, but is this something that the Suns should be concerned about going forward? Or do you think that even if Booker's struggling here and there, Chris Paul and DeAndre Eaton, Mikhail Bridges, Jay Crowder can make up for the rest of it and maybe Devin Booker just kind of limps to the rest of the season to the finish line? Yeah, that's the thing. I think that that game six uh, where Chris Paul went off against the Clippers for 40 points, which is kind of an anomaly, like you don't really see Chris Paul do that. Um, and while Devin Booker has not been spectacular, I would say, like, like you said, the field goal shooting is a little bit off. I think he's done enough for the team, uh, especially game one and game, game two, where uh, I think game one was Chris Paul had 32, Devin Booker had 27, I believe. So he's like usually done enough for the team to get over the hump, um, especially in the finals. Well, obviously not last game, but DeAndre Aiden, Chris Paul, Devin Booker, that big three, I think at least if two out of three of them, have a decent to good game 
it's enough for the team to uh, kind of win. But I really think that Booker needs to step up his game if they want to be convincing enough. Because I'll be honest, I don't think that – I think DeAndre Ayton from game four forward is going to be more hindered defensively. And I think he's going to be more worried about his defensive game against Giannis. So I'm not counting on DeAndre Ayton to be a huge factor going forward. I think that if he steps up his defense and kind of avoids the fouls, obviously then he can be more of an impact player like he was earlier in the series. But I think Monty Williams is going to tell him to focus on guarding Giannis. That should be his number one priority. I think offensively, like he can kind of like give it to Chris Paul, Mikhail Bridges, Jay Crowder, Devin Booker. Um, we saw Mikhail Bridges go for 27 points in game two. So it's possible for the other role players and uh, starters on the Suns to go off compared to Aiden. So, like you said, Booker does need to be better, but they do have the firepower to keep up with this Bucks team. Like I said, I think their eight-man rotation is a much better eight-man rotation than the Bucks have. Yeah, you know, the short answer to that is yes. You know, Devin Booker doesn't need to be, you know, this 40-point, 30-plus-point 30, 30 guy every single night because this team has so much of depth. Like Mohan just said, Mikel Bridges going off for a playoff career-high 27 points seven rebounds in game two like it just shows that this team they can plug and chug guys um but again it's going to come down to i think i think the most important guy in this series for the suns is chris paul and um that's not to say that you know he he's really not washed up or anything like that i just believe that you know when we spoke about this earlier all three of us were in agreement in terms of chris paul deandre and how they run the pick and roll that's really going to set the tempo for the offense offensive side of the ball, how Devin Booker plays off the ball, um, Chris Paul finding those lanes, getting to the mid-range. You know, like we saw what Chris Paul did against Giannis in some occasions in game three. He had him on an island. He was hitting the mid-range. He got what he wanted when he wanted it. Um, but I think game three, I'm not I'm not convinced to a point that the this Bucks team is like, they've made it a series. We need to see game four as well. The reason that I'm saying that is because, again, we saw and will quote like from Rohan abysmal performance um, from Devin Booker. Uh, DeAndre Ayton was in foul trouble. So it just depends on how they're going to, you know, play the Bucks from here on out, especially defensively, because they need to make sure DeAndre Ayton's out of foul trouble. Um, they need to make sure that Devin Booker's in rhythm and just, you know, kind of get back to how they were in the first two games. Yeah, I think if the Suns can get Devin Booker on track at least a little bit, and what Monty Williams did in game three, instead of, I don't want to say quote unquote, he benched him, but rather he just gave him an extended rest to get that, get those feet back under him and say, we're down by 20 in game three. It's fine. We're up 2-0. The Bucks are the ones that are desperate here. We'll rest our star, our young star for a few more minutes and we'll go at it in game four because like, I think we're all in agreement. If the Suns win game four, it's basically a wrap and the Suns know that. So they're really just resting D-Book. He had a bad game. It happens to the best of us. Just rest him, give him those extra minutes. And, you know, that can make the difference in game four. Maybe Devin Booker hits a few more clutch shots. The Suns win that game. And that's basically a series right there. So we'll see how that strategy really works out for Monty Williams going forward. But it may be a, it may be the point where we really look back and see this is where the series changed. Or we could be like, it really didn't matter. Yeah, I think more importantly, though, with Monty Williams benching Devin Booker, it sends him a message, meaning like, like, hey, coach is not coach doesn't care who you are. 
if you're having a bad game, you're not performing, you know, we're going to bench you. And so I think Devin Booker understands that. I don't think that this is going to like turn to any kind of issue whatsoever. You know, this team's in the finals for a reason. Um, but I do believe that he's going to respond in a really good way. Um, that's going to benefit this team because he knows what he needs to do. Um, I'm sure, you know, he's got that Mamba mentality in his back pocket, you know, be legendary like Kobe always told him and like how he writes on his sneakers. So um, there's no doubt in my mind that Devin Booker is going to bounce back. Um, the Sun team is going to bounce back. Um, obviously, like, you know, the fan inside of me is rooting for Giannis. Like, I'm, I'm loving what they've done in Milwaukee. But again, like the Suns team just looks so darn good that I'm I'm so convinced with the Suns and six is my prediction. Yeah, I think uh, Devin Booker is due for a bounce back game, uh, Sean. I definitely agree. But like I said earlier, I think the story of game three, while obviously Giannis was dominant once again, absolute legendary stat, you know, first person since Shaq to do that uh, in the finals. But I think that Chris Middleton and Drew Holiday coming along for the ride this game compared to game three was a huge turnaround for the Bucks. And the backcourt for the Bucks, obviously, as I said, outscored both Devin Booker and Chris Paul in game three. So Drew Holiday went eight for 14, 21 points. Chris Middleton, uh, six for 14, 18 points, nothing crazy. But I think it was enough, especially since Giannis was so dominant. So I think if at least one of either Drew Holiday or Chris, Middle Chris Middleton combines with Giannis just to contribute on the offensive side, the Bucks should have another fighting chance in game four. Um, Drew Holiday, while he didn't score like over 25 or anything crazy, he assisted or scored on... 22 out of 24 of the points that the Bucks had in that 24-6 run in the third quarter, which I think was the pivotal point of the game where it was basically over by that point. Um, the Suns never really made it close anytime in the fourth. So that run was really huge for the Bucs um, in order to close out this game. So we need to see more of that from either Middleton or Holiday. And I told you guys last game, I'm oh, sorry, last, not last game, last podcast, um, that Chris Middleton is due for one of those like 40-point games and I'm just going to go out on a limb and say that he's going to score over 30, maybe 35 next game. I'm going to, I'm not sure if Chris Middleton is going to score 35 next game, but I do really like the point that either Middleton or Holiday have to show up to compliment Giannis if the Bucs want to win. And I think I'm going to take that one step further and say that Drew Holiday, especially just because of the talent he has on the defensive side of the ball, can contribute both on the offensive side like he did in game three, but also defensively. Like we've seen all three games of the finals, his offensive game hasn't been amazing in the first couple, but he's still been able to contribute on the other side of the ball, even though his shots aren't falling. That's what I really like about a guy like Drew Holiday. If his shots are falling, that's great. He gives you the points on one end and then stops the opponent from scoring on the other but even if he's not a contributing on the offensive side he's still able to contribute to the team in some way or another and i think that's where chris middleton drew holiday have to hang their hat on if their shots aren't falling they still have to be able to contribute to the team in some way or another because these are the nba finals Giannis is doing all he can and something we haven't even talked about are Giannis's free throws something that he struggled with for most of the playoffs but last game he shot 13 of 17. I think that was one of the biggest things that the Suns were like kind of shocked at. A lot of their game plan, including DeAndre Ayton, was anytime Giannis got close to the um, the rim was to hack him, foul him, make him shoot two free throws rather than let him get an open layup or a dunk. And Giannis, you know, he made him pay for that. He made both free throws most of the time. He shot 76% from the line. And that's ultimately what really led to the downfall of the Suns in game three, I think.
Yeah, I mean, when it comes to the free throws, though, you got to take into account that they were, they were at home. So he doesn't have people, you know, I guess, heckling him as much um, at home. So he needs to keep that up, of course, for game uh, game four. But I'm going to I'm going to go out on a limb. You know, um, Rohan, Rohan stole Chris Middleton take from me and Yash, you stole Drew Holiday take from me. So right now I'm left with like, I right, which player needs to call me honest? But I'm, I'm going to go out on a limb and say it's a referee. Right. I think that if the Bucks have Scott Brooks as the re- sorry, Scott Foster, my bad, as the referee, that's going to be the key because I did see Stat Music tweet out that in the last 13 playoff games officiated by Scott Brooks, Chris Paul's team Scott is Foster. one in 12. Scott Foster. Sorry, Scott Foster. I keep saying, Scott. I don't know why I keep saying Scott Brooks, but Scott Foster. Um, when he's referee and the one win that happened, they're one in 12 in those 13 games that Scott Foster has refereed. And the one win that happened, uh, Chris Paul didn't play in that game. So, so I I think it's, it's going to be interesting seeing the uh, ref match. I don't think that Scott Foster is going to ref back to back games. Maybe later in the series, we can see that, but I think that's definitely a trend. Even Chris Paul has acknowledged that in previous, like, uh press conferences he's done just him and scott foster just i don't know some kind of beef there so we'll see what happens um yeah it's kind of it's kind of like you and chris paul too yeah me and chris, hey, it's me just and like he doesn't foster. acknowledge you though he just doesn't acknowledge <laughs> exactly exactly and <laughs> scott foster kind of on that chris paul beef edge but <laughs> yash yash was right um though though Giannis's free throw shooting has always been a problem I think last game was kind of an anomaly for him. I don't think he's going to go 75% again. I'll just say it. As much as I love Giannis, like his free throw shootings are just absolutely terrible sometimes. But Sean, you're right. They are at home. So he should be doing better in that category. And I I heard like um, Coach Monty Williams complaining about how the Suns only got 16 free throws, but Giannis got 17. I don't think he remembers that their whole game plan is to kind of foul Giannis when he's in the paint. Because as he's shown you in both, game two and game three, no one can guard this dude one-on-one, which is why I really strongly push that if I were the Suns, you have to build a wall. We saw how Toronto did it a couple of years back with Kawhi, Marcus Gasol, uh, Serge Ibaka, Siakam. They built the wall and Giannis just completely struggled driving to the paint, wasn't able to do his you know spin moves, Euro step to the basket. So there's no way anyone in the Suns can guard Giannis one-on-one. DeAndre Aiden has tried, has failed. There's no way Jay Crowder and Mikhail Bridges can do that either. So I don't see why Monty Williams is complaining about Giannis getting the calls when they're playing him one-on-one and fouling him majority of the time when he goes to the basket. So if you want less foul calls, less free throws for Giannis, which I don't know, maybe sometimes it's a strategy, you need to double this dude or at least block the paint so he doesn't drop another 40-piece on you because I think he's fairly capable of doing it again. And I really think he's going to have another 40-point game sometime in the series before it ends. I want to bring up a name that the Suns recently lost in Dario Saric. And I think that at this point in the series, that loss is really hurting the Suns. 
It's in game three when DeAndre Ayton goes out with that foul trouble and repeatedly goes out because of foul trouble. A guy like Dario Saric, who is their backup five and who's a big man to the point where he's 6'10", 6'11", and he's a lot bigger than Mikhail Bridges or Jay Crowder. And simply in terms of strength, he can stay in front of Giannis rather than a smaller dude. And that's where the Suns are really showing their lack of depth because of the fact that they don't have this backup five and they have someone like Frank Kaminsky or a short dude like Mikhail Bridgers, Jay Crowder guarding him. I just see that if they had Dario Saric in this series at this point, does it go slightly differently? Is he able to slow down Giannis? I know no one's stopping Giannis, but does he at least slow him down? I don't think so. I mean, it goes back to Rohan's point about you can't guard him alone. But I think more importantly, when it comes to guys like Giannis, you can never, ever stop him. You need to hope that he's going to stop himself. Like, you know, having a bad night like Devin Booker did in game three. Um, like just when it comes to the star players, like you just have to learn to do damage control. Um, again, if DeAndre Ayton was not in foul trouble, maybe then we can talk about that. We can put that as an if out there. But someone like Dario Saric, like I'm not trying to discredit him as a player, but like hearing that name against Giannis, it just doesn't make sense to me at all. Like I still believe that Giannis will still have his way um, and again, also going back to Rohan's point earlier about how like the Raptors did this whole thing with, you know, Marcus all Kawhi Leonard and all that stuff. Like you need to understand that that was also a very different time. I feel for the bucks, even though it was, you know, what two or three seasons, two seasons ago, I believe that, you know, Giannis is a player as well. I feel that he, I don't want to say he's gotten like better at shooting per se, but like he's gotten better in terms of the way that he gets to the basket and the way that he handles defenses. Like he's, if anything, he's improved as a player down the stretch. The thing is that also that Raptors team, like you need to understand that Kawhi Leonard was practically um, a defensive player of the year candidate, I believe that year. Um, and he, he continues to be one of the best defensive players in the league. So again, like I don't see anyone in this series, let alone in the playoffs that, uh, to this point um, against the Bucks that have done a good job in, taking Giannis down like uh, I believe again going back to Satmu is like he is on pace to become the first player in NBA history in a single playoff minimum of 15 games to average 25 points 10 rebounds five assists one steal and one block while shooting 55 percent from the field he is averaging 29 points 13 rebounds five assists one steal one block and shooting 56 percent from the field so no team has been able to find an answer for Giannis, and I do not believe that they will find an answer for Giannis, which brings us back to the point that it needs to come down to Chris Middleton and Drew Holiday or both of them together to really help push this Bucks team to the next level. Yeah, Sean, you hit it right on the dot there. I think you're right that the Toronto team was better equipped to stop Giannis, but I also believe that while Dario Sarge, you know, isn't that big name, isn't that big defensive name, it's just another big body for the Suns to have. Well, sadly, he's not there because of the ACL injury. But I think that it would have just been another big name. Like, he's 6'10", 6'11". Could have teamed up with Aiden to kind of build that wall um, to block Giannis from driving in. But now they have to figure out how to do it without Aiden getting into foul trouble. And while utilizing their smaller bodies like Jay Crowder, Mikhail Bridges. Um, I think the only other big man who they really have behind Aiden right now is Frank Kaminsky who you know isn't that defensive man that you need so it's going to be interesting to see 
how they play Giannis down the stretch, but I think a wall is necessary if they want to win. I, I just think that you can't keep letting this dude drop 40 points on you and expect you to get away with it like you did in game two. Yeah, I think there's a lot of different things the Suns can do. Obviously, when you lose by 20, there's a variety of defensive adjustments. And the Suns can either focus on trying their best to slow down Giannis or go back to the strategy that worked in game one, and that is or game two, sorry, but that is let Giannis do his thing, but make sure no one else does. Giannis can score even 80 if he wants, but if no one else shows up, the Suns are still probably going to win. We saw Giannis scored 40 and 10 in game two, and the Suns still won by a reasonable amount. So as as long as Drew Holiday, Chris Middleton, I know we've said this a few times in this podcast, but those are the X factors. If they're hitting their shots, the Bucks have a pretty good chance to win. If they're not, there's really no one behind Giannis unless Brooke Lopez or PJ Tucker hit a few threes and maybe, I don't know who else, Bobby Portis, the fan favorite comes out and shoots a couple, but really as long as Chris Middleton and Drew Holiday are on their game, the Bucks have a chance. If they're not, the Suns can probably win the game. So, you know, those are the X factors. And I, I really do think that both teams know that and they're going to kind of focus on the either offensive plan or the defensive plan, depending on whichever way you look at it on those players. Yeah. I mean, you know, hoping, praying, I guess Bucks fans are right now that this team can figure it out down the stretch. Um, ultimately, you know, if this Bucks team can get it rolling and somehow win the NBA finals this year, like that's good for them. But um, the Suns, they got some players still left to play some basketball. That's a uh, Devin Booker. He's going to be on Team USA. I think that's a good transition now to talk about Team so, USA. I think they need D-Book. So is Chris <laughs> they need and Drew Holiday. Yeah, they, they, need, they need everyone that they can. I, actually, I don't believe that Chris Middleton and Drew Holiday, the way they're playing right now, they're going to make Team USA worse, man. Like, like defensively, maybe they can help, but it's, it's looking pretty ugly for them. Can Team USA really be any worse than they are right now, losing to Nigeria? And then Australia? I have no idea, honestly. See, I'm, I'm going to be real with you. I think the Nigeria game, it was like they just walked in like, hey, we got this. And then they just got blown out. But the Australia game, like, come on, man. Like, like you already have all the slander. Everyone's slandering you on social media. You know you need to win this game. And, like, you go out and lose that. Um, good thing right now is that they are up 58-42 at halftime against Argentina. So they're not messing around tonight. But um, and Jason Tatum is out with a right knee soreness. So I think it's it's kind of good in a way that they're responding that way. I mean, that's the expectation. They should they shouldn't be losing any games, quite frankly, with all that firepower that they have. I think that, you know, Josh was talking about the stuff earlier, you know, off the podcast, um, just talking about how that this team really doesn't need a defense when you have that that good of an offense. Um, again, Bam Adebayo and Draymond Green were only two notable names defensively. Maybe you can add Kevin Durant in there as a two-way player. But, um, you know, other than that, I mean, this team really has no excuses down the stretch. Uh, I'm personally not really concerned. This is just exhibition games, but at the same time, I can see why people would be concerned. Yeah, I think it's concerning just because they haven't lost, like, back-to-back -back ex exhibition games, I think, I believe, since, like, Josh was saying like 1992 or something like that. Um, ever since like the last or the first dream team. So it's a little bit concerning, I guess. Um, but I kind of, I'm kind of with Sean right now. I just think that this team assembled five to six days ago, didn't really get much practice time, kind of just threw a team together last minute. 
Um, there are a lot of opt-outs. Obviously, Steph and LeBron, two big names which aren't playing. Um, but Man, it's a pretty thought, pretty good team though to throw yeah, together. That's what I was, I was a about couple to say. Like, days, just like <laughs> it's a really exactly, good team. Like, the roster is just um, obviously full of talent, but I think we gotta say this: the rest of the world is catching up to the U.S. in terms of basketball. Not all the uh, stars now come from the uh, from the United States. You know, we see Luca, we see Jokic, Embiid, Giannis. Obviously, um, they're not participating right now in the Olympics. But I think we just need to acknowledge that the talent isn't always coming from America right now. We have a lot of these international stars coming over to the NBA, putting their stamp um, on the league and going back and representing their countries. Like Nigeria had five NBA players. Australia has five NBA players. So, you know, these teams aren't scrubs, obviously. I don't want to say that we should be losing to them. Um, but I, it's not, I don't think it's going to be blowouts like how it's been in previous years um, where, like, you know, we just slaughter them by 45 and the game's over by halftime. But another problem with Team USA, which I was discussing with Yash off the pod earlier, was that there's no, like you said, Sean, there's no big defensive names. There's, there's Bam and Draymond Green, but it's a small team overall. They don't really have a true point guard. Um, you can say, like, Damian Lillard is there, but, like, someone who can really distribute the basketball um, and can go off ball too. So I think that they, the way they constructed this roster was fully offensively, and I thought they may, maybe they thought that would work. But first two games, like, they've been out-rebounded since the team is so small. Um, they're not shooting as well, so their first strategy is out the window. But, I mean, it's good that they're up so big at halftime right now, and hopefully that they can just get it together once these exhibition games are over before the Olympics start. So I think like there's kind of two factors here that we look at Team USA with. Firstly, it's the skill factor. And these are all NBA players. And if you look at Team USA versus every other team's skill on paper for paper or player for player, Team USA is by far the better team. Kevin Durant, Damian Lillard, Bradley Beal, the list goes on. They are by far the better team. But there's also a second thing that a lot of other countries' teams are playing for, and that's pride. Team Nigeria, Team Australia, Team anything else, they don't have anything to lose when they're playing against Team USA. Team Nigeria come in, came into the gym and they're like, we're probably going to lose. The spread was 35 points in Team USA's favor. Nigeria, what happens if they lose? Nothing. People are like, all right, you were going to lose anyways. So they come into the gym with everything, with nothing on the line, and they just give it their all. And if they win, they win. If they lose, who cares? But Team USA, as good as we are, if we lose, everyone mocks us. If we win, nothing really happens because you were supposed to beat the team. And that's what we see again and again with great teams, the Warriors, the Nets, the Lakers, the Showtime Lakers. When they win, everyone says, okay, you were supposed to win. When you lose, that's a big deal. And that's why I think that Team USA is kind of under the magnifying glass a little bit more with these two losses. Any other team loses a couple of exhibition games, who cares? They're exhibition games for a reason. But just because this team is supposed to win, people love talking about the losses. If Team USA won both of these games, I promise we wouldn't even be talking about it on the pod probably. But just because of the fact that this team is so good, they probably should be winning. There's no excuses. I'm not trying to say this is an excuse. When you have Kevin Durant and Bradley Beal and Damian Lillard and so on and so forth, you shouldn't lose a game. But hopefully they can get it together. I think they will get it together. It's just a matter of focusing in and rather than taking it for granted, they have to start taking it a little bit more seriously. Yeah, absolutely. I think they just need to remind the world who they are 
<laughs> I mean, it's, it's really that simple. And, you know, going back to what your point was like, that's the expectation. Winning is the expectation. Um, like, cause like when, when they win, I don't believe that they're getting like that, like reassured pat on the back that you would in the NBA playoffs when you beat a team, you know, like, that's like, that's different in this scenario. We're like, okay, like, that's what, you, that's what your job is. That's what you're, you know, you're supposed to do. Um, and, you know, going back to like all these other countries that are playing team USA, I think that they're kind of, they're kind of looking at them. They're like, Hey, if Nigeria beat them. If Australia beat them, why not us? And that's, that's when I think the fear starts setting in on some level for, I don't believe that it's even the players. I think it's more of the coaching staff for team USA. Um, I mean, I'm, I'm gonna, I don't want to, I'm not saying that I'm blaming them, but if I am to blame someone or look at, look at an aspect of team USA that's going wrong, it's the coaching staff, because, you know, if it goes down to like players, like think of this as pick up ball, we just pick up ball. Like you, you don't, you don't have coaches. You don't have none of that. You're just looking at who has the hot hand, who's the best player. Let's put together a team, just quick five on five, you know, that's just how it is. And I think that this team, they need to remind themselves that they're just basketball players at the end of the day, you know, when they're on the court rather, and, you know, just, just play it, play it out how they do in the NBA. Um, I think that one, one thing that I think is making team USA mad is the way that they are being treated by the referees in the Olympics are very different than the league, the, than like in, in the NBA, um, you know, you're seeing players like, like lean in for the foul, um, just fall down or like, you know, basically keep drawing the foul. Like you're, and ultimately that's not, that's not the playing style that you want. And the NBA is obviously going to do something about it, but it's much more physical. And I don't believe that this, the team USA is used to that. And that's what they need to, you know, like pucker up and get rolling with. Sean, great point there. I think that that is just a huge problem with the NBA today is just that the calls that a lot of these people get are super soft sometimes. We saw Kevin Love, um, I believe it was against Nigeria, just kind of lean in, um, trying to get that three-point shot, three-point foul. Um, and like we see it so many times in the league today, and we kind of just take it for granted. And we don't realize that the rest of the world doesn't really play like that. The FIBA basketball rules are so different than how the NBA is right now. It makes it a much more physical game. And in my opinion, I think it makes it much more watchable. I think that we, the NBA really needs to stop, um, do something about those kind of like draw and fouls where the player with the ball just kind of leans into the defender and it's called a foul on the defender. It's just absolutely absurd to me. I think it worsens the game. People go just, just hunt for fouls all the time. We see Trey Young, James Harden, um, people like that just kind of continuously do it. And I think it makes the game worse and less entertaining for at least the casual fan. Um, so I hope the league does something about that. I know they were planning on reviewing that in the off season, but it's kind of interesting to see the team USA stars get frustrated when they don't get those calls because they're used to getting them. People like Jason Tatum, Damian Lillard, they're used to getting those kind of calls. And I could see visible frustration on multiple of the players faces against both Nigeria and Australia because they're, they thought they were going to get those calls from the refs. But another big thing is that I think that there's too many ISO players on this team they need to have more ball movement um, in whatever games that they have going forward. Usually, when I was watching some of the highlights. It just seemed that it was Draymond Green bringing up the ball like he does on the Warriors and kind of waiting for Dame to come save him um, off the screen. Dame would just do like a, a couple moves on the ISO or KD would do that on the ISO. 
So there needs to be more ball movement on the team. They need to play more like a team compared to it being one on five and just going iso ball. I think that's a really bad strategy for them going forward. But still, this team is much more talented than any other country going forward. So they shouldn't have any problems. Maybe they just slept walk through the first week. And I think they should be fine going forward. Just like Josh said, take it more seriously. So, you know, we don't want to have another embarrassment like when we got bronze a few years ago. I think both of you hit it right on the spot. And it's the it's the difference in the rules between the NBA and FIBA basketball. FIBA basketball is more oriented towards defense. They allow a little bit more of that defensive scheme that used to be allowed back in the day. All these old heads in the NBA say the NBA soft. You wouldn't have survived back in the 90s or early 2000s. And that's kind of what we're seeing in the FIBA tournament. You know, defensive three seconds is allowed in the international ball. It's not allowed in the NBA. All these foul hunting players that Rohan was just talking about, they don't get rewarded for those type of plays in FIBA basketball as as much as they're used to getting in, in the NBA. So that's something that they're going to have to adjust to. And I do think that because they're NBA players, they should be able to. They're the best of the best. There's no excuses here. You shouldn't be looking for fouls in the Olympics. That's not how you're supposed to play the game. If the foul comes to you, yes, take it. But I don't want Kevin Love sitting at the three-point line and pump faking to get a foul against Josh Okogie. That That's not like fun basketball. And that's what I think that FIBA basketball or what the NBA can really take from international ball, hopefully in the future. And as Ron talked about, the NBA is really thinking about making changes this off season. So we may see some of these changes in the league um, in the 2021-2022 NBA season. It may be a major change like we're seeing. There may be like an adjustment period where a lot of the offensive players have to change their games and not look for the foul calls as much. But Coming back to the Olympics again, I think this team should be able to make the adjustments if they're not already against Argentina, and they should get the gold. I would be very, very surprised if they don't. I would be actually, frankly, I'd be embarrassed if they don't. There's no other team that should even be a match. Maybe Luka, if if Luka takes Slovenia to a gold over Team USA, do you, do you think he's in conversation for the greatest player in the world right now? No, Trae Young still won more playoff series. <laughs> I'm sorry. I just, that was a straight face. Like, uh, honestly, honestly, I think, I think that's more of a marketing thing than a real thing. If that makes sense, um, it's more of like, like Luca. See, like, if you're still gonna ask me who the best player in the NBA is right now, like, like people are gonna say like LeBron. I'm honestly gonna tell you it's Kevin Durant. Um. You know, you could say maybe Giannis down the stretch. There are arguments, Steph Curry, like, like there's so many arguments for that. It's not that to hate on Luca or discredit him any kind of way. It's just, it's just when it comes down to picking either or, I'm going to take those guys over Luca. That's fair, but Luca, just imagine Luca hits the game winning three to win the gold over Kevin Durant, Bradley Beal, Devin Booker, Draymond Green, and Bam. <laughs> With a team that's so that's, so now we're going back to like you know like how Rohan's strategy create a wall. So now we're going to create a wall at the three point line for Luca. I mean, probably because it's not like <laughs> Slovenia has anyone else. They've never made the Olympics, and now Luca's yeah. leading them. So that's pretty crazy. That this is the first year they've actually made it. Well, I'll, I'll 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 see it. I'll I'll believe it like when I see it. That's fair. That's fair too. <laughs> but but who knows? Who knows? Maybe Luca will be like triple team. Like you never know. Like it's some unsung hero for slovenia that we don't know 
he kicks it out to him and that guy hits a three or something crazy. So you never know. The next Dirk. It shouldn't come. Okay. All right. Now, now, <laughs> now we're completely deteriorating off of this. But one thing that I did want to touch up on before we do conclude this podcast is, do you guys believe that Team USA could hypothetically be a little bit distracted? And the reason I'm bringing that up is because um, there was a report from NBC Sports that kind of went under the radar um, posting on the panels later today. Um, Zach Levine did admit that there is kind of, you know, player tampering per se within Team USA where like, you know, players are talking, it happens, um, you know, about teaming up, this and that. So it's more of like, do you believe like there, there are like, I, I don't know how to phrase this. It's more of like, do you think that these players are there for the right reasons? And don't get me wrong. I know that the ultimate goal in everyone's mind, like hypothetically media asked them a question, they all are going to say, I'm focused on winning the gold. I know that's the ultimate goal, but do you think it's an underlying storyline no one really wants to touch up on and that players are really not going to admit to and talk about? Sean, that's a good point. I think that you're right. There definitely is some, you know, quote unquote tampering going on between the players, you know, especially with players like Damian Lillard, who's looking to leave his team, request a trade, go somewhere else. What, what is a better place than Team USA, where it's like the best basketball players in the world teaming up together? Um, you know, you're living in close quarters, having conversations every day. What, who's to say that someone like Draymond Green isn't convincing Damian Lillard right now to request a trade to the Warriors? Like, it's a very possible uh, scenario, but I don't think that it's a distraction per se. I think that it's there and it's something fun that, you know, us, the, the media, us fans kind of look at and like think about, about the possibilities there. But I don't, I wouldn't say that it's a distraction. It's a good point though. Um, but Right, you know, like any like any player, like the honor of winning a gold medal for your country is like people would say that I heard Luca say that if he won a gold medal in Slovenia, it, he would consider it higher than the NBA championship. So the just the possibility of like teams of players teaming up during this team USA period is a very interesting one. And I think it's something we need to look forward to, especially as free agency continues. But I don't want to say it's a distraction per se. Like these dudes are professionals. I think that there may be some distractions there. Like Rohan just talked about Draymond Green, Steve Kerr. Steve Kerr is one of the assistant coaches. Maybe they're talking to Damian Lillard, like, hey, you want to come over here? Greatest shooting team ever. And like, yeah, that's obviously going to be happening with these guys in the NBA so close together for like, what, eight, 10 weeks. I'm not sure how long they are together, but they get closer. They get to know each other on a more personal level. And they're like, let's, let's ball together. Let's be on the same team in the NBA in the future. That's definitely going to happen. But as Ron also talked about that winning a gold for your country is, is a level that's just not replicable in the NBA, because in the NBA, you're winning a championship in one country, or I guess two, if you're counting the Toronto Raptors, but no one outside of that. Yes. The NBA is considered the best basketball league in the world and it quite frankly is by far but competing for your country having that team usa plastered on your chest holding up the trophy for your country is just a different feeling and while i think luca for luca it's slightly different because he doesn't have the foregone conclusion that slovenia is going to win the gold easily if slovenia won the gold it would be that he worked his ass off to get over team usa so it's slightly different for team usa it's the the baseline they have to win the gold to bring it back to america and because of that i think 
once the Olympics start, they're going to kind of hone in, make sure that they do accomplish that goal. But right now, a lot of these guys are probably just treating this like a paid vacation. The NBA is their full-time job. This is just like, you know, kind of time off. They're going to do what they want. They're going to have some fun playing basketball. If they win the exhibition games, they, they do. If they don't, we see what happens. They're losing some of them. So for them, they're just, you know, chilling, I think. Some of these dudes just like the hoop, bro. Like a lot of the players, like they just come here. Like, yeah, they want to win a gold for their country, but they just also want like, this is a good way to work out in the off season, improve your game. Um, obviously you want to win the game and win for your country, but what better way to do it than competing with like the world's best players. So people like Katie, bro, like Katie could have taken this off season to rest and recover like just a few months af- off of his Achilles injury, but dude just likes to hoop. So can't blame him. I mean, ultimately, you know, Rohan, you were saying that it's probably not a distraction. You actually were kind of like on the edge of maybe it's trash, maybe it's not like kind of, and I'm going to go to the other extreme. I'm going to say that I think it is a really, really big distraction. Um, the reason that I'm saying that is because, you know, um, I'm not going to get too much into free agency talk right now, but basically Kevin Love is like a name that's probably going to get bought out. The Nets are at the top of his list um, as a landing spot. So I think that there are definitely conversations that him and Kevin Durant have probably had behind the scenes. The reason I believe that it's such a big distraction is because you need to see how they interact on the court. You know, if Kevin Love's like missing like a pass to KD or, you know, running the wrong play and stuff like that's stuff that's going to be in the back of Kevin Love's head. And maybe in the back of Kevin Durant's head, too. He's like, I can't work with this guy. Like, how am I going to put up on his like on an 82 game season with him on the Nets? Like, how can I trust him to do this and that if we can't even work together at the Olympic level? So all of that comes into play. Um, you know, Damian Lillard, again, don't want to get too much into it, but. We do know that the Warriors reportedly touched base internally in the organization about a Dame trade. Now, picture this. Damian Lillard, he's working with Draymond and Steve Kerr. Sure, I'm sure that he's loving that process. But what guarantees that he's not pulling Kevin Durant to the side and saying, hey, what was it like in Golden State? You know, what was it like, like, you know, playing with Steph and Clay and Draymond? Because those three are still there. I'm going to take like your role type thing. You know, I'm coming in as the new guy staying there for a bit maybe, and then leaving. So what's that kind of like? So I feel like all these kind of conversations that are going on on the side, I think that that is more of a distraction from what they need to do and what they need to focus on at the time. Don't get me wrong. Now, after these two losses, um, I, I 100% do believe they're going to be Argentina in the span of what, within the hour after this podcast is done, you know, they have a formidable lead over them. So I don't believe they're going to go down 0-3, but... It's, it's worth noting that I think that there are more things going on behind the scenes that we don't know about. Again, these are just hypothetical situations. I'm just putting it out there. Um, and it's worth, you know, mentioning down the stretch. Just, just FYI, I don't believe that Kevin Love should even be on this Team USA roster. I have no clue how this dude got a spot. Uh, dude has been absolutely terrible in both the games. He's, not a good, he's barely even like a top 50 NBA player right now. So if, if the Nets want to buy him out, I think he could play like a LaMarcus Aldridge role on the Nets. Obviously, I don't want to, like you said, John, we don't want to go too much into free agency talk, talk right now, especially with things still early. But you're right. It could be a distraction a little bit going forward. But at the, at the end of the day, in my opinion, these dudes are professionals. Like that stuff is in the locker room. You do that off your, like, your own time, after practice, after games, in the nighttime when you're in the hotel chilling with the team. But during the game, you need to lock in and focus, you know, like, like it just kind of needs to 
be like that. You're working for your country. Worry about that stuff later. I meant maybe in regards to, you know, your Kevin Love statement about how he's not amazing and stuff. Maybe, maybe be a Chris Paul, you know, Chris Paul wins a ring, he'll retire. Maybe Kevin Love gets the Olympic gold, he'll retire. Here we go with the Chris Paul, but I had to relate it back to him. I mean, I do, man. Like your player slander seems so random. I'm like, I'm like, dude, just leave Kevin Love alone. Like, I mean, like, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not going to, I'm not going to go out on a limb. I'm not going to start any Kevin Love slander, but I'm just saying that, I don't believe that he's relevant enough for me to like talk about like that. And it's not, it's not to say that he's like, like, I'm not trying to slander him like that. I just believe that he's really not relevant in the NBA that much anymore. Honestly, Sham, I think I'm going to have to side with Rohan on both these points here. Yeah. I think Kevin Love should absolutely not be on this team. Like, Team USA. Oh, yeah. No, I agree with bigs. that. He no, lacks, I agree he lacks a few with big, that. And Kevin Love's taking up a spot that could have been given to you know, anyone that's a better big than he is, even DeAndre or Andre Drummond would have been a better option than Kevin Love. Yeah, perhaps. No, I mean, I, I'm, I'm agreeing with that. I'm saying in regards to just like the tone that Rohan addressed him in, it's like, it just reminded me of his Chris Paul slander. He's like, oh, he's old. You know, no one likes him. Like he should just retire type vibe. So I was like, I mean, yeah, okay, I get it. Kevin Love's closer, definitely to retirement and should retire compared to Chris Paul. Absolutely. Also, I just did want to touch up on that one point Sean was talking about with the players tampering. Mm-hmm. I think that the players honestly already know each other quite a bit. They've been in the NBA working with each other for possibly the past 5, 10, 15 years, depending on how long you've been in the league. And, you know, I'm sure Damian Lillard knows exactly what Steph Curry is like, what his personality is like. He knows what Klay Thompson's like. They've been in all-star games together. A lot of the NBA is a brotherhood. These guys are friends on and off the court. So while they are competitors on the court, I think there is that level of, I know how the other team's locker room kind of operates to a degree. Obviously, you don't know the inner workings of it, but I think that there are at least the superstars know each other to a certain level that the Olympics wouldn't be as big of a ground to do this as they used to be. I think in nineteen in the 1990s, especially with like the Michael Jordan era, this was a lot bigger. Michael Jordan was very famous for saying this, that he would never team up with anyone on the dream team just because he was such a fierce competitor. We know that the league's kind of softened its stance on that like hard-nosed comp- competition. And it's a little bit more of a brotherhood type Kevin Durant leaves this team to join a super team and LeBron joins a super team everyone's just joining a super team nowadays so I'm not sure how much of a distraction this is all I know is that team USA has to win gold there's no excuses we've been talking about this but at the end of the day they're just way too good to be doing anything less yeah Yash you know we could talk about team USA all day long but um a win against Argentina will practically silence us for the time being along with the entire country, I hope. Um, But other than that, that's all that we have for you guys today. Stay tuned for more at thefanalist.pod. Podcast coming out after uh, the finals, you know, game four, five, so on and so forth.